Today we continue our study of the eight characteristics of a true Christ follower with today the fourth characteristic. Extraordinary characteristic number four is a Christ follower lives by the word of God. Living by the word of God, that is leading my life by the word of God, making decisions by God's word, evaluating my choices by God's word. This is all possible when I first put my full weight on the Word of God. Living on the Word of God, that's what we talked about last time. But once I've chosen to rely on God's Word as God's Word, God's final Word, and as truth itself, then I'm ready to live by the Word of God by applying it to my life. So let's take a look at what Jesus says about living by the Word of God. Please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. Jesus says that if I'm going to produce fruit as his follower, I must apply God's Word to my life. Jesus teaches this in the form of a parable recorded in Mark, chapter 4. Starting with verse 3. If you're using the Bible provided for you, this is on page 709. Mark chapter 4, verse 3. Jesus says, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. Well, it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and, the, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, even a hundred times. Now skip down to verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word of God. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, or apply it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that hearing the word of God is, does not make you a fruitful follower. Hearing the word of God does not make you a fruitful follower. Jesus describes four categories of people. And all the people in all four of his categories hear the word of God. But only one of these four people categories produces fruit. The fourth category, 
people Jesus calls good soil in verse 20 produce fruit because they hear the word and accept it, where accepting God's word means allowing it to take root and produce the fruit of life change. Jesus says that hearing the word of God does not make you a fruitful follower. Living by or applying the word of God makes you a fruitful follower. So for the rest of our time today, let's talk about the three steps of living by the word of God. Step number one, read the word of God. Here's the summary of this point, this first step. You can't apply God's word if you don't know it. And the first thing to do under step one is to get the Bible that is right for you. Start by getting a good translation of the Bible. In the pews before you, we provide the NIV, the New International Version, because we think it's a good translation. But there are other good translations. Get one that is right for you. Next, choose the style of Bible that is right for you. I strongly recommend a study Bible. I brought my study Bible uh, here with me this morning. In a study Bible, there are helpful notes written on the bottom of each page that give some helpful information and answer questions you may have along the way. There are large print Bibles. Uh, There are Bibles small enough to carry in your pocket. Get the Bible that is right for you. Then, next, make a plan for Bible reading. Now, I'm not a man who makes a lot of predictions, but based upon my experiences helping people grow spiritually, I can confidently tell you that until you have a plan for a consistent Bible reading, you will never consistently read the Bible. You must have a plan. You must have time. You must have a time when you read the Bible, a place where you read the Bible, and a method you use to read the Bible. Here's Jim's plan. Uh, His time for Bible reading is in the morning. His place is on the train to Grand Central Station. And his method is to read one chapter in the book of Psalms and one chapter in the New Testament. He started in Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and now he's in Romans, the sixth book. Here's Nancy's plan. Her time is in the evening after putting the kids to bed. Her place is in the big chair in the living room. And her method is to take one book of the Bible at a time, reading two chapters a night. You get the idea. You must have a plan. If you don't have a plan to read the Bible, you won't read the Bible. It's a sad prediction, but I find it to be true. Until you have a plan for consistent Bible reading, you will never consistently read the Bible. Next, personalize your Bible reading. Now, there are a few important ways to personalize your Bible reading. Um, First, pray. Pray before you read the Bible. Ask God to speak to you through his word. Ask God to help you apply what you read. Second, personalize your Bible reading by listening to God as you read. Don't think of the Bible as an impersonal textbook. Uh, Think of the Bible more as God's personal letter, love letter to you. And listen to his voice as you read. Listen to his voice between the lines. 
Third, personalize your Bible by writing down your thoughts and your reactions concerning what God says to you through your Bible writing. If you don't feel comfortable doing this, then don't do it. But I recommend writing in the pages of your Bible. If something strikes you, underline that verse. Circle words. Record personal observations uh, by writing them in the margins of your Bible. Work your Bible hard. Uh, Here's what I notice. People who use their Bibles until they are falling apart usually have lives that are not falling apart. Families that are not falling apart. Marriages that are not falling apart. So I say, work your Bible until it's falling apart, and you'll find that your life won't be. Uh, When I was a little kid, uh, my family paid a visit to my slightly eccentric Aunt Sally, or Aunt uh, Sylvia. I had two eccentric aunts, uh, Sally (laughs) and Sylvia. Uh, Aunt Sylvia, uh, I, I discovered that she had little soaps in her upstairs bathroom. They were dolphins. And I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, I had gotten a soap on a rope for Christmas. That was really neat. But these were little dolphins even better. These soaps were so cool that over the course of the afternoon, uh, I had used them all. And uh, I remember how later my Aunt Sylvia went into her bathroom and screamed, Who used my soaps? (laughs) And when she screamed, and continued screaming, uh, the whole family crammed into the bathroom. And uh, the whole family looked down where she was pointing, next to the sink, where there was now a group of little soaps that looked like uh, a gathering of sad seals now, uh, badly beaten (laughs) club seals. And And I kept asking, Am I going to get in trouble for washing my hands? And that just doesn't seem right. Well, I found out that these soaps were just for looking pretty and not for using. And Aunt Sylvia was a little crazy like that. Uh, She had also an antique chair in the living room that nobody was supposed to sit in, a piano that nobody was allowed to play, and on her coffee table, she had a Bible that no one was supposed to touch. Uh, Aunt Sylvia had a decorative Bible to go along with her decorative soaps. And I don't think God is into decorative Bibles. I think God gets a lot more pleasure seeing your Bible marked up, underlined, full of notes, rather than hermetically sealed, untouched, unread on your coffee table. But then I was scarred by that whole dolphin soap thing, so I may not be objective about this. All right. Uh, next, keep your Bible handy. Living by the Word of God means you refer to your Bible like it was life's instruction manual. And that's, of course, what it is. So you need to keep your Bible handy for a quick reference. Carry it with you. At the bare minimum, at least bring your Bible here to church. We provide Bibles there before you for those who don't have them. But if you are a Christ follower, you must have a Bible and you should bring it here to church. So if you can uh, just bring your Bible, you will find it natural to start writing in your Bible, writing in the margins, taking notes on the teaching. And every Sunday, bring your Bible. End of story. 
that's step number one, living by the word of God. Step number one is, is, uh, is reading the word of God. Step two, study. Study the word of God. Here's the summary. Ask three questions of every scripture you read. What three questions? Well, what does this say? What does this mean? And what does this mean to me? Once I start reading God's Word, I'm ready for step two, which is studying God's Word. Now, let's just say, for instance, I read Luke chapter 10 uh, and hear Jesus teaching about the Good Samaritan. My first question should be, what does this say? Which means that I pay attention to the context of the words I'm reading. And when I do, I realize that uh, this parable is Jesus' answer to a specific question, where the question is, What does it mean to love my neighbor? If you don't know what the question is that's being asked, then you're not going to be able to understand the text that you're reading. Next, I pay attention to the kind of literature that I'm reading. Uh, The Good Samaritan passage is a parable, which is a story with a spiritual lesson. There are many literature types in the Bible. Uh, There is narrative history, there are Poetry, songs, letters, visions, and a part of knowing what the words are saying is knowing what kind of literature it is you're reading. Next, I pay attention to the details. The Bible is this amazing book with its message in the details. So, in Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, this this details matters. Uh, It matters who ignores the wounded man on the side of the road. It matters that they were religious people on their way back from worshiping God in Jerusalem. It matters that the guy who helps the injured man is a Samaritan, that is a guy from Samaria, a guy who is a national enemy of the wounded man. God speaks through the details of his word. And after I ask uh, what the passage says, I go on to question number two. What does this mean? Which means I think about the writers or speakers, in the case of this parable, purpose. A little thought reveals that Jesus' purpose in this parable of the Good Samaritan is to explain that love is not a feeling, love is an action, and that my neighbors are not the people that I live near, they are the people God brings across my path. They are the people who cross my path anytime, any day. Next, I think about the message conveyed in the details. I think about how religious people in Jesus' parables, in Jesus' parable here of the Good Samaritan, they pretend to see, uh, they don't see the wounded man. And then we notice how clearly Jesus is expressing God's disdain for worship that comes from people who have praise on their lips but no love in their heart. Now I ask the third question of my scripture reading. Question three, what does this mean to me? I listen to what God is saying to me personally. I hear God convicting me about the guy in the cubicle next to me at work uh, who is broken over a nasty divorce and how I've been pretending I didn't notice his pain. So then I, I respond. I respond to God's word in prayer and I ask God to help me reach out to this guy at work. And then finally, I make specific decisions based on God's word, which is applying God's word, which leads us to the third step in living by the word of God. Step three, apply the word of God. Here's the summary. God has a personal message for you every time you open your Bible and read. In fact, this is what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This says that God wants to use His Word to give me a personal message every time I open the Bible. God's message may take different forms. Sometimes God uses His Word to teach me, sometimes to rebuke, correct, or train me. But God's desire is always to apply His Word in my life every time I open myself up to it. So every time I study a portion of Scripture, I should be asking questions like, does this teach me about who God is? Does this lead me to further worship, to adore God for who He really is? Does this help me know God better? Or does this teach me about what God wants for me? Does this teach me what God wants me to avoid? Uh, uh, or does this teach me actually what God wants me to receive from Him? Uh, is there a command here that I need to obey? Is there a promise here that I need to hold on to? Does this teach me about how God wants me to live? Uh, does this teach me about how to handle my anger, how to love my spouse, how to lead my children, how to treat my employees, how to handle worry or stress or situations that are out of my control? Next, does this teach me about where God wants me to go? Does this teach me how to alter my where my time and energy goes? Does this tell me where my money should go? Does this speak to me where God wants to use me and my gifts for His glory? Life is a series of decisions and choices and forks in the road. And God gives me His Word to help me know where to go. Now, I know I'm giving you a lot of information here, but living by the Word of God is not about information. It is about transformation. So I'm going to step aside and let you hear what living by the Word of God means in the way of life transformation. I've asked Dan Barkas to share his life story. Dan, uh, tell your story of how God has used his Word in your life to bring some serious life change. Good morning. <laughs> well, I grew up in a very loving and supportive family and have a wonderful relationship with my parents and my sister, both as a child and still today. One thing missing, however, was the strong Christian influence in my life. As a family, I was what we call Christers, really only attending church on Christmas and Easter. But even that eventually stopped. I had always had an interest in God, and years later I actually found a picture of Jesus that I had drawn. But without that strong Christian influence, my desire would fade, and I'd spend the better part of my life not knowing what Jesus would have to offer me. I was always a pretty good kid growing up, never getting in any, any real trouble, maintaining good marks in school. It was in the sixth grade, when I was playing with some neighborhood children, that their older brother in high school decided it was a good idea to introduce us all to pornographic videos. As a late bloomer, I had no idea what was going on, but I watched anyways just to not become an outsider. This became a semi-regular routine, and it led to more movies, magazines, and other forms of behavior that would plant seeds in my life that would come back to haunt me later on. In high school, I was fortunate to be good friends with one of the prettiest girls in the whole school, a girl named Carrie. We became best of friends and ended up falling in love, and we became high school sweethearts my junior year. As I headed off to college, I picked UConn so I could stay close to Carrie as she still had another year to go. At UConn, I joined a fraternity, which is one of the best things I ever did in college. It shaped the man I am today, 
and it's where I've met the best friends in my life. It also, unfortunately, exposed me to some other friends who were not looking out for my best interests. Almost immediately, I got the lines about how high school relationships never last in college and how every guy who had gone into college with their high school sweetheart ended up breaking up and regretting it for years. My own roommate, who was one of my best friends in high school, was also telling me to live it up because I'm only in college once. Although not a Christian at the time, I resisted the temptations around me, but still kept hanging out with these people, drinking with them, and when no one was around, I turned to pornography to live out my impulses because, hey, it doesn't hurt anyone, right? Talk about giving the devil a foothold. I gave him an open door and a red carpet. That spring, Carrie made the decision to go to school in Virginia, about an eight-hour drive from Yukon, which might have been across the Atlantic in my mind. It was then that my sins started to eat me up. My anger kicked in, and I was bitter inside with Carrie. The drinking and use of pornography increased, and all of a sudden, the people telling me that my relationship with Carrie was a waste of time started sounding a bit more reasonable. That spring semester, I began cheating on Carrie, even though we were still together, and I lied straight to her sweet face. You see, Carrie had a childlike faith in me that I was a wonderful person, and I knew she would never be unfaithful to me, so I used that against her in the worst of ways. The cycle of pornography, drinking, cheating would go on for years. Although I knew what I was doing was wrong, I somehow justified it to myself that I didn't want to tell her, I didn't want to hurt Carrie's feelings, and, you know, hey, I didn't make her go to Virginia. Deep down, I did love her all this time, and I did care for her, but I was also right up to my eyes in sin. And I thought living this double life was the fun I was supposed to be having in college. Unfortunately for me, my friends were there all along to tell me what I was doing was okay, because, hey... You're only in college once, right? Ironically, throughout this ordeal, Carrie was finding Jesus in a very real way through Campus Crusade for Christ and a group of five other girls she lived with who were all biblical Christians. While Carrie was growing closer to God, I kept drifting further away. I actually teased her about her newfound faith and would cut her with passing remarks, diminishing what she had discovered. Eventually, my sins brought me to the point where I couldn't stand being with Carrie anymore. The drinking, cheating, thoughts of other women, and the little voice in my head telling me this wasn't worth it, well, they all just started to take over. To be honest with you, at that point, she probably couldn't stand me either. We broke up and saw other people for a while, and during that time, I dated someone who made me start going to church, which is probably the only reason I met her anyways. My interest in God as a child was rekindled, and I wanted to take First Communion and Confirmation classes at the local Catholic church, which I did. Those classes, or through those classes, I caught a case of the conscience, and I sat down and I wrote Carrie a letter apologizing for the bad things I had done, and I confessed how I had been cheating on her all that time. Well, Carrie got the letter, and when she called me, I actually heard her heart break over the phone, and she cried in a way that I will never forget in all my life. I hope none of you ever break someone's heart like I did. To see the results of my sin was truly horrifying. Carrie had full insight into how I had betrayed her, endearing trust, and how our relationship had been a lie. It was then I realized the full weight and impact of my sinful lifestyle. Carrie did not speak to me for months. In the six years I'd known her, we'd rarely gone a couple days. A voice in my head told me that confessing was stupid and to give it all up. She's never going to speak to you until you're dead. High school relationships never last. And you might as well quit those stupid church classes as well. Well, this time I decided to ignore that voice and continue on my path. I continued in my faith journey by myself, and perhaps that's how God wanted it. That spring I accepted Christ and committed to follow him. 
I knew this was the right thing and that God would put the pieces together, and sure enough, he did. Later, Carrie and I were home on break, and we restarted our relationship Easter weekend, a perfect symbol for a new beginning. I knew all along that Carrie was the one for me, and now I had a chance to make things right and to live out my life devoted to the girl I loved all along. Satan would immediately try and take this from me. <laughs> no kidding. The very next weekend, I went back to school. I had a female friend of mine corner me in a locked room and in no uncertain terms make clear her intentions. Before accepting Christ, I might have acted. But now the Holy Spirit sent a strong sense of conviction shooting to my heart, and I got out of there as soon as I could. Jesus told me in John chapter 14, verse 26, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Satan has not tried again since that day. That winter, I asked Carrie's father permission to marry her, and I proposed over the summer. During our marriage prep class here at BlackRock, we made a vow of sexual purity. He should have seen and heard the reactions of my friends when I told them that. During a time of doubt, I turned to God's word, and he spoke to me in Mark chapter 7, verse 8. He said to me, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. This confirmed that we were making the right decision. And we remained pure throughout our engagement and were married by a BlackRock pastor a year later, immediately moving to England for my job for what Karen and I call our six-month honeymoon. No doubt, a gift directly from God for submitting to his will and his teachings. The Lord has blessed me with my marriage in many other ways as well. God has blessed me with some amazing Christian friends, which has been a new thing for me. It's been great. I've also been able to witness to dozens of people. I guess after this morning you could say hundreds including the thrill of getting down on my knees alongside my wife to lead someone to Christ who had felt the brunt of my sinful, sinful anger for years, my mother. Just this month, Carrie's little brother came to know the Lord and was baptized, saying that our relationship with God was one of the biggest factors. I've been able to encourage other family members to turn back to the Lord, which has been great, and I'm currently working on other friends and family who do not yet believe, and I know that their days of unbelief are numbered. I still have my own struggles, however, which are still all internal to my own mind. Lustful thoughts, controlling my eyes, or where I visit on the Internet. This is the next challenge I must face, and I know that many others struggle with the same things. I think this is Satan's biggest foothold in the United States. Isn't it interesting to see these adult megastores popping up all over the place? All you have to do is drive up I-95 to see the evidence. I travel on business. It happens in other cities, too. Or how about the success of shows like Desperate Housewives, which celebrate marital infidelity? A foothold is being exploited here. To men and women with these struggles, please listen up. It is never worth it. Please learn from my mistakes. You can always tell Satan's lies from everything else. They are temporary and primal. And afterwards, they will leave you feeling empty, guilty, further from your spouse, and further from God. You must become, we must become more open and honest about these struggles. Get yourself an accountability partner. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says to encourage one another and build each other up. Talk about your struggles with another Christian. I would not recommend bringing these struggles to a non-Christian, however, as these behaviors are encouraged by many in the world. Most importantly, cry out to Jesus for help in your struggles, especially right there in the moment. Ask him to take away your sinful desires. I've done this many times myself, and it does work. There is hope 
and you are not alone in your struggles and you can change. You just need to recognize the problem, confess your sins, ask your loving and father in heaven for help, get an accountability partner or at least someone to pray for you. And by all means, spend time with God, reading his word and let him speak to you through that. In closing, I'd just like to quote a Christian music artist by the name of Sarah Groves in her song Generations regarding sin as a Christian. She says, to say that the devil made me do it is a cop out and a lie. The devil can't make me do anything when I'm calling on Jesus Christ. And I would add to that by letting him speak to you in his word. Devil has no power. Please remember that. Thank you for the time this morning and God bless you all. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story of life, this life story of how you used your word to bring truth uh, into Dan's life and to set him free. Now, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, that same experience with whatever uh, struggle we have. And Lord, give us that uh, victory starting with a plan, a plan to read your word and to apply it every day. Lord, we we pray that you would cause us to be more and more extraordinary Christ followers, even as we uh, give you our offering right now. Lord, may this be an expression of our desire to live by your holy word. Amen.